Amen, and thank you, Matt and the team here on the second floor and up on the third floor leading us in worship, those of you who are on the first floor, and all those of you watching remotely, I bid you good morning as well, and welcome to worship. I can't imagine with all the different faces and families represented, all the different things and thoughts that are going through your minds, but I can promise you, whatever else is going on that is competing for your heart's affection and your mind's attention The sovereign God of the universe wants desperately to connect and to communicate with you in some way. So my invitation is to not get caught up in how good the the worship is or how well the walls are painted or even how good the sermon is, but is God speaking to me? Whatever it is that you've got to make eye contact with to say, not now, for the next few moments, I'm going to listen to the Lord speak to me. I pray that he will do precisely that. And to that end, I'm going to pray for us again. Yes, we're going to waste time praying. No, it's not a waste. This is, this is how we make sure that we, to the extent that we can, are precisely hearing the very words of God. So join me in prayer. Father, speak, please. Your servants are listening. Amen. We have a uh, verbal expression in our home. And it's usually uh, spoken in the negative. When one of us is going through a hard time or things just sort of continue to cascade in a negative way, we'll sort of snicker and we'll sort of smugly smile and go, you're struggling, you're a struggler, struggler. And that's because a number of years ago, my wife Susan and I were on a vacation in an airport, and we were so proud of ourselves. We didn't have a lot of space to pack, and so we packed very, very tightly, very efficiently, very, very professionally. We couldn't have done any better. We were good packers. We did a great job. Well, we get to the airport. It's an international flight. We land, and we're going through the customs hall, and the people in front of us had apparently emptied three Walmarts worth of merchandise. And uh, these folks, as they were trying to push all of their stuff through the customs hall, Stuff just started to like fall out. It was rolling down the customs hall. This is an international deal. And bless these folks' heart. I, God love them. They're about 5'5 five, five in every direction. And so as they dropped the thing, they tried to get and pick it up, and they would fall over. And we just sat there, and we, we just sort of smugly pointed at them. Strugglers. They're struggling. And I mean, there they went. So who brings shower curtain rings on an international trip? There they all went. Five gallons of mayonnaise? Who brings that? There it goes rolling down the customs hall. It was really embarrassing. Well, of course. A number of years later, my family now, this time with my two sons, we took an international trip, and we find ourselves in another airport internationally. And I had planned it perfectly, had all the documentation, had everything ready to go, and wouldn't you know it, struggling McGee, it all went off the rails. As I dropped all of our passports and all of our legal documents down the escalator, and it began to tumble, some of it going into the cracks of the escalator. And I'm looking back at my wife and sons for help. And of course, they're going, struggler, struggler. Well, that verb is a, it's an intense verb at our house. I have found over time when my wife every so often gets into a season where she's struggling. And I point and I chuckle and I laugh and I go, ha, 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 struggler, struggler. It's at that point that she becomes a Proverbs 31 woman. And she stands and she grasps her hand, the staff, and she beats me about the head and the face. Because we know that that's a a negative term. When you're really struggling, 
we say that you're driving the struggle bus. Oh, look at you. You're just driving the struggle bus. And then when things have gone totally out of kilter, you're driving a whole fleet of struggle buses. That's the kind of day you have. And at that point, you get to choose the restaurant for the evening because it's been that kind of a bad day. Well, we want to talk about the struggler-in-chief of our Old Testament series in the book of Genesis. We've been looking now for 10 weeks, looking at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the struggler-in-chief, whose name really means grasper, struggler, wrestler, schemer, deceiver, heel grabber, sneaky ambusher. We're going to look at him. Now, for these 10 weeks, we've been looking at the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And our refrain for these 10 weeks is an important one. It's the theme of the Old Testament that God is faithful. Despite how everything else might seem or look or feel, God is faithful. He will do what he has promised to do. The story of redemption, where a holy God woos back to himself a fallen, rebellious, repugnant people. It shouldn't even be a thing, but it is, because he is good, and he woos his people back. Now, we started talking about the story of Abraham. After all the human violence of Genesis 1 to 11, God says, I'm going to redeem the world, and I'm going to do it through this one particular family. And we looked at the life of Abraham. We looked at the transition to his son, Isaac. Despite all the different meanderings and machinations that Abraham goes through, Isaac is the promised seed of blessing. Finally, Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau, and we've been studying about Jacob where he tricks his brother, he tricks his father, and he has to go on exile. And for 20 years, he's fled to Mesopotamia to serve a man named Laban after having seen this incredible heavenly escalator that is filled with angels ascending and descending and God saying, I have come to you. I am with you. Wherever you go, I am with you. And Moses writes all this down so that the children of Israel the covenant community, the messianic people will know that God is with them. Well, we finished up last week in chapter 29. Jacob is up in Mesopotamia. He's taken a wife and then another wife, and then he's worked for six more years. And it's in this six years that we have the chapter 30. 30 is what I like to sort of subtitle, birth wars, where these four women sort of pit themselves against one another, trying to have the right to conceive with Joseph. There's even a strange little narrative where the firstborn of Jacob, a guy named Reuben, who's the, who's the son of Leah, he goes into the field and he finds these mandrakes, which were ancient mystical ideas that people thought these roots had powers of fertility. And so he gives them to his mother and then she barters with Rachel so that she can go in and it's super not okay. You would never make this up if this was a book about a hero and a fable or a moral. Oh no, there's no morals to these stories. These people are jacked up and yet God is faithful. Leah ultimately gives him seven children. Rachel finally conceives and gives him a son named Joseph, two of the handmaids. They each give him two sons as well. Now Jacob says, it's time for me to go. It's time for me to turn back south and head to the land of promise, to the land of Canaan. He and Laban, his uncle, they get into some disputes about whose livestock is whose. Laban's a sneaky guy, but Jacob has learned in 20 years how to play this game. Laban says, I'm going to give you all this particular kind of subpar livestock, and we'll know whose is whose. But then he tells his sons, when Jacob's not looking, you get all those livestock and take them away. Jacob figures it out, and he does this really bizarre thing where he outwhites white. I know, that's weird, but that's what the text is saying. Laban's name means white. And Jacob, using all these funny, like, fertility practices for the livestock and the goats and the sheep, he outwhites the white and he wins, and he gets these massive, massive flocks over six years, and now it's finally time to go. 
Jacob says, I'm going to leave. Laban says, don't, because the Lord's told me that I'm prosperous because of you. I want you to stay here and keep working. Well, one day Laban goes out to have his sheep shearing, which doesn't mean a lot to us, but in those days, that is the biggest annual feast and festival of the year. So Laban is off making Mary shearing his sheep, and Jacob says, it's go time. He goes to Leah and Rachel and says, God has told me in a dream that your father is cheating me. And they go, you think? Of course he's cheating. It's what we do. He says, it's time for us to go. They say, you might as well go. We're no more than foreigners here. We've been disowned. Besides, our father has squandered all of our money. Yes, let's go. And so they hook them. They head south and they get close to the land. But Laban finds out about it and he gets all of his people and he saddles them up. Remember all those lazy shepherds? Well, it took a while. He got them all mobilized and they chase down Jacob and all of his household and they catch them in Gilead. And they have this nasty conversation, this nasty confrontation about whose livestock is whose. And oh, by the way, which one of you stole my idols? Oh, no. Laban tells Jacob that someone has stolen his idols, which you kind of want to go, well, that's probably a good thing, you ninny. You shouldn't be keeping idols laying around. We're told in the text that Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, has stolen her father's idols. But it's not just that she took these little statues or these little figurines, although that's what they are. There's more to it. These things are called teraphim. It is Laban's understanding of how he is protected. It is Laban's understanding of his worth, of his value, of his identity. And these teraphim, they represent the birthright. Whoever has them has the birthright to the estate. So just in case you're scoring at home, just to make sure you're clear on this, that's right. Jacob's first cousin, Rachel, has just stolen a birthright from her father. Where have we seen this before? This family, you would never make this up. So she hides them. Jacob has no idea. Laban says, where are my idols? Jacob says, listen, I don't know what you're talking about. Stop yelling at me. I'm going to start yelling at you. Whoever has them here in the camp, if they're found, I swear they can be put to death. Uh-oh. Laban looks and goes through every single tent, can't find them. Finally, he goes into Rachel's tent and she's seated there concealing the idols. And Laban says, up with you. Let me look around. And she says, oh, this is a really awkward time. I can't, I can't, I can't stand up right now. And Laban's like, yes, you can. No, it's, uh, how shall I say, it, there's a seasonal thing happening to me in a cyclical sort of way. And Laban goes, deuces, I'm out. And he leaves. And so she's able to conceal them. Laban leaves. They continue to fight. And so Laban and Jacob finally say, we're going to strike a covenant. We're going to set up this little monument here so that you can't come north, Jacob, and take all of my assets, because just in case you do have my teraphim, my birthright, and I will not come south. I will not venture from Haran, and I will not come into Canaan. We will forever be separated. Good. Now we have a place and a break where we can turn to Genesis chapter 32 and see what happens as Jacob returns and approaches this land of promise that God promised his grandfather Abram. Jacob is 95 years old, and these are not highway miles on him. Jacob, 95 years old, got his whole household, chapter 32. Jacob went on his way. This is after he cuts covenant with Laban. It's the same exact expression that we get in chapter 29. After Jacob sees the holy escalator, heaven brought down to earth, earth brought up to heaven, Jacob went on his way, but it's, he picked up his feet. 
He's hooking them. He's picking them up and putting them down. He's moving quickly. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. Now, we are intended to see the symmetry here, these bookends. As he leaves Bethel, there is the holy escalator and the angels of God ascending and descending, and God himself descends and approaches him and is standing right there. I'm with you, Jacob. I told you that I would be. Yes, 20 years have gone by, but God does not change. The angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. That's a tip-off. When you see all the angels of God, you go, this seems like someplace God might be. That's right, Jacob. And so he does what we would all do. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim, double camp, because I got my camp here. God's got his camp here. Hey, there's two camps. This is pretty cool. You think he would be super encouraged. Okay, God is with me on this deal. As we approach the northeastern corner of the land of promise into Canaan, God says, I was here when you left. I am here when you're coming back in. I am with you, Jacob. I've got this. Oh, but how quickly we forget. Verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers. Well, he sees these angelos, these messengers of Yahweh. He thinks, okay, so we're in the messenger business now. I see what's happening. And so Jacob himself sends messengers. What we're going to find out is the one person with whom he still has to reconcile is his brother. I think this is somewhat in the mind of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, when you're coming to worship, leave your offering there and reconcile with your brother. Jacob knows there is some unfinished business. He deceived his own brother. And he's coming in from the northeast. He's heading southwest from Mesopotamia down into Canaan. He's got to go right by Mount Seir, which is the domain of his brother Esau. They live in the land of Edom. And so he says, I'm going to send messengers just to see how things are going to go there. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. There's some play on words there, to the red one, in the red place, the red guy. It's all about the red. You remember the red stew that Esau gave it up for? And what we're going to see is Jacob hasn't forgot this. He's still going to try to play on Esau's base desires. He instructed his servants, his messengers, thus shall you say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I ran away from you 20 years ago. Now I'm having to run away from him. Hugs, bro? That's kind of what's going on here. And he's descending into all this flowery language that's unnecessary. 95 years earlier, God himself had spoken to his mother, Rebecca, and said, the younger will serve, or the older will serve the younger. The younger will be Lord. He will be the master. And so Jacob is still not quite trusting that God is faithful. You tell him, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent, this is the earliest social media. Look at me. Look at all my stuff. Look at all my, check this out. Jacob's sort of like, kind of a humble brag, right? I have oxen and donkeys and flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we have good news and bad news. By the way, if anyone ever tells you we have good news and bad news, they just have bad news. <laughs> Everything else is just a delivery mechanism to get to the bad news, right? We have good news, we have bad news. We came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. That's the good news, the bad news. And there's 400 soldiers with him. It says 400 men-ish, but they're not manicurists. I mean, they're there to do damage, all right? And remember, Esau is a gifted man of the field. He's a great hunter. He's an outdoorsman. And he's got 400 of his buddies riding with him. They're coming to meet you, 400. Then Jacob was greatly afraid. We're going to hear that expression over and over and over again. Fear is 
the mind killer. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him. You see what he's doing? As best he can. Hey, two camps. I saw there was God's camp and my camp, and I'm going to try to see if I can port this to my own uh, situation. And so he divides his camps who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So let's see, you're left-handed, you're with that camp, you've got a weird mole, you're with that camp, she's your mother, you're with that camp, and all the rest of us, we're going to hang back and see how this deal goes. And the rest, thanks, Dad, bye. This is a terrible strategy. We're going to send up about mm, a couple hundred meat shields and see if Esau gets tired, and then maybe we'll have a chance, or maybe we can escape. By the way, this is a terrible tactical strategy. 400 men could have easily wiped all of them out. At least they should have stayed together. They would have had more an advantage. But Jacob is afraid. Fear makes us do dumb things. Fear makes us forget. We have to decide and know in advance. So Jacob devises this strategy. But then in verse 9, Genesis chapter 32, verses 9 to 12, is the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. And it happens right here by sneaky. And it's a great prayer. It's a wonderful model. It starts in verse 9 with the word of God. It concludes in verse 12 with the word of God. And in the middle is a petition. It is a great prayer. It's a great model. This guy is finally starting to step into the person God created him to be. And Jacob said, oh God, oh, and maybe not quite like that, but oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, but not yet mine. Very instructive. Oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, oh Yahweh, he calls him there, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. God, this was your idea. That's okay. God can handle that. You know what? Because it is God's idea. God is faithful. This is the plan. I want you to return to the land that I promised you. Jacob, I've got this. And Jacob says, this is your idea. You told me to return to your country and your kindred, and I may do good to you. And then he gets very sincere, very honest. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed eset. Two different words. Steadfast love, chesed, is covenant-keeping kindness, your, your loving mercy, your loving kindness toward me. Your eset is your faithfulness, your steadfast rock. You do not move. I'm not worthy of any of that, and that's true. I'm not worthy of your steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. When I left here 20 years ago, I had a stick. That was it. And now, and now, I have become Two camps. Well, you were one camp and you divided them. But anyway, verse 11, here's the plea. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. Now, that word deliver is important. We're going to see later on that God does, in fact, deliver Jacob, but not in a way that he expects. He pleads, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me. And the text is interesting in the Hebrew, the mothers with the children. There's a very grievous tone here. He's not just going to kill me. This is going to be a holocaust. This is going to be a slaughter, and I deserve it. What I have done in deceiving, what I have done in tricking and scheming, despite the fact that you said you were going to bless, despite the fact that you said you were going to keep your promise, I made a mess of things, and now there's going to be all these innocents. He's going to slaughter 
the mothers and the children. You've promised me offspring as numerous as the sand, but he's going to come and he's going to kill everybody. Help. But you said, he goes on verse 12, again returning to the word of God, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. God, I need your help. He's going to kill everything. He's going to undo your promise. You have to come through or we're all lost. Verse 13. So he stayed there that night. And from what he had with him, he took a a present for his brother Esau. I'm still going to try to appease him. I'm still going to try to soften him up. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. (laughs) That's a lot of livestock. 550 animals plus all their milking young. This is an exorbitant gift. It's absolutely stunning, but wait, Jake's not finished. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself. And he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. In other words, we're going to send one herd by itself. And it's going to be this wonderful procession. And Esau's going to go, whoa, goats, my favorite. Whose are these from? You tell them it's from your servant, Jacob. He's on behind us. These are for our master, Esau. Oh, okay. And then whoop, another flock. Whoop, another flock. And then five separate droves or herds or flocks are going to just keep hitting Esau's base desires for respect, for notoriety, for livestock. Jacob thinks he's got this thing all figured out. When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks, to whom do you belong, verse 17, where are you going and whose are these ahead of you? You shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. Jacob's thinking, perhaps he will soften up by the time the 549th animal comes through. We'll find out later in chapter 33, none of this was necessary. God had this all along because God is faithful. Verse 19, he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves, you shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. And that's it. That's what Jacob's been wrestling with. That's been Jacob's struggle his whole life. Desperate for acceptance. Never felt it from his father, never felt it from his wives, never felt it from Laban, never felt it from Esau. He's never felt accepted, never felt like he belonged to anyone, anywhere. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Now, Hebrew narrative is always so brief, you almost never get details of setting. And so when it tells you that it was night, it is the night night. It is the dark of the dark. It is foreboding. It is dreadful. He's already said to have been terrified in dread and in fear. This is as bottom as it gets. Jacob thinks he's about to die. Verse 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Now, there's some wonderful, wonderful Hebrew play on words here. I could totally geek out on this. I'm not going to. There is some wonderful play on words. Jacob crosses the Jabbok before he yabach. It's this Hebrew thing where he's going to struggle as he crosses the Jabbok, and his name is Yabech. It is this wonderful interchange that Moses is really trying to drive the point home. This is no accident. This is precisely where it happens. The Jabbok is this little stream. It's a tributary of the Jordan River, the northeast part of Israel. You cross here, there's no going back. And it's important to understand, Jacob is changing before our very eyes. 
He knows that Esau wants to kill him, and he, he deserves to be killed for his swindling and his cheating. And yet, he hears there's 400 men coming towards him. He doesn't turn and go back north. There's nowhere else to go. It's either God, you've got me, or I'm gotten. No other way about it. And so he presses on ahead. He take his, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent everything across the stream and everything else that he had. He's alone. He's pressed everything across the stream, and now he's on this side of the stream about to go in, but he's totally alone. He has no idea if everything he sent on ahead has been butchered. He doesn't know. He's just trusting in the faithfulness of God until finally he sends his wives and children across a river in the dead of the night. Even a small river, that is incredibly dangerous. But he says, I have to get them away. I have to be alone. I have to reflect. I have to pray. Now, I want to remind you, this is a familiar story, but don't get lost in the familiarity. He's at his absolute lowest. He's terrified. He thinks he's about to get killed, and he's cried out, and he's prayed, God, help me. God, help me. What would you think is going to happen? Not this. Verse 24, and Jacob was left alone. And a man, <laughs> jacob him. That's the word. It's just, we don't know who this man is. Is it Esau? Did he put his knife in his teeth and swim across the river and take off his ninja mask and then jacks him in the kidneys? No, 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 no. All we're told is, and a man jacobed him. This mystery man, sneaky ambushes the sneaky ambusher. This deceiver deceives. He kind of fights a little dirty here. Jacob was left alone. A man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. In Hebrew, it's just four words. It is so sparse. Dude jumps him. A man jacobs him. And they wrestle. They don't box. Box, you can sit there and you can dance around and you can do all kinds of things and you can do this. Wrestling, it is full on. My brother and I used to wrestle for about 90 seconds and then I would bite or scratch or cry or scream or kick and it was over because I wasn't going to lose to him and then he would just hold me down and sit on me and we would be exhausted in a frothy, just disgusting sweat and then we'd go get like some push pops and it was all fine. Now this is grappling and it goes on for hours. Now let me explain. When you're grappling with an assailant, when you're grappling with an attacker, you're doing whatever you can to get him off. You're trying to get him off, but this mystery man's kind of got him in the full Nelson, kind of got him in the figure four, waiting for him. And then Jacob keeps whirling out, but he's trying to get away, and this man just holds him, just grapples with him, and he's struggling, struggling. He's a struggler. Old Jacob's driving a struggle bus right about now. Oh, he has no idea. Until the breaking of the day, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Now, we're going to find some amazing details here. He didn't prevail. Oh, he could have. We find out pretty quickly here. This is God himself, not an angel. It is the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ. Jacob makes it very clear he has seen the face of God. Now, not God the Father, a pre-incarnate Christ, just like what Abraham encounters in chapter 18 when he's visited in his tent. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. You know how this is. You're wrestling with your kid, and they think they've got you. They think they've got you, and then suddenly you go, and you throw him through the wall. You want some more? Come at me. Come on back. He's been restraining himself this whole time. He doesn't wrench the largest joint in Jacob's body. He just barely touches it. The Hebrew is very specific. He just sort of touches it and dislocates his hip. There must have been a lightning strike of searing pain and debilitation. It says in the book of Judges that when Samson defeated the Philistines, he beat them hip and thigh. 
If I break your wrist, if I break your arm, you can still come at me. If I snap your femur or your hip, you are now a sack of feed. There's nothing you can do. He just taps Jacob, and his hip is dislocated. He touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, the man did, for the day has broken. Jacob now realizes, oh, I have been fighting with all my might. I've been fighting all of my frustrations, everything that's ever gone wrong in my life, the thing with Laban, the thing with Esau, the thing with the, the cheating me with Leah, all of it. He's putting all of his muscle fiber into growth. And he finally realizes, this whole nine and a half decades, I've actually been fighting with God, not with Laban, not with Leah, not with Rachel, not with Esau. I've been fighting with God this whole time. He touches him. And again, when you're wrestling, when you're grappling with someone, you're trying to get them away. But now Jacob has a transformation experience. Now he clings. It's an amazing verse. The man says, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, no way. I will not let you go unless you bless me. The greater must bless the lesser. Jacob has gone from trying to get him off, get him off, get him off, get away from me, get off me, get off me. Why is my life so hard? Why am I so struggling? And now he realizes it's God. And you know what he does? What you better do, what I better do. Now his hands are completely empty. He's got no livestock. He's got no loves. He's got no staff. He's just got nothing. And so he's now finally free to clutch and to grasp and to cling and to struggle. I will not let you go. Can you imagine the scene? Because you're supposed to. His hip is out of socket, searing pain. But he realizes, I'm all alone. It's dark. If I let you go and I don't get your promise of faithfulness, I'm done. And he just grabs and he grabs and he grabs. And you know what? God says, you win. <laughs> that kills me. He declared a loser, a winner. You, you have to know that about this story. Listen to what he says. Let me go for the day is broken, verse 26. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he, the man, said, what is your name? <laughs> you know, the last time someone asks Jacob's name, it was his father. What is your name? And he said, Esau. 20 years later, someone else asks his name, and he goes, cheater, liar, deceiver, sneaky. That's me. You want to know who I am? This is me at my best. This is me. I'm a cheat. I'm a swindle. This is me. Do not let me go. And God blesses him. Listen to what he says. He said, my name is Jacob. Then the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel doesn't give him livestock, doesn't give him wealth, doesn't give him shekels of silver and gold, doesn't even give him more wives and children. He just gives him an identity. You were deceiver, swindler, ambusher, cheater, deceiver. Now I call you struggles with God. Oh, look at him. He's a struggler. That's exactly right. He's a struggler. He clings. He wrestles. He struggles with God. Why is Moses saying this? I want you to know you are Israel and God fights with you. You must cling to him. You must struggle with him. All of the things you think are wrong in your life, God's fighting against you. 
You're fighting against God, but cling to him. He will not cast you aside. Moses wants them to know. This is not how we make treaties in the land. God's giving it to you. Trust him. He is faithful. He continues on. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Why? For you have striven or struggled or clung with God and with men and have prevailed. This is the gospel. You've tried, you've tried, you've tried, and you've failed. But you cling to me, and so you win. I declare it so. This is our God. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? This is a Hebraic expression for, oh, come now. Why are you asking? You know who I am. I am the God of your father, Abraham. I am the God of your father, Isaac. I am the God of Israel. Such a great encounter. And there he blessed him with a new identity. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen the face, or I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered by grace. Had the sun come fully up and Jacob gotten a full view, he would have been incinerated. But by grace, his life was spared. The sun rose on him. Ah, that's a Hebraic expression. New day, new life, transformation has come. He laid aside all of his strength and he clung only to God. He rose up and as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Think he ever forgot that moment? <laughs> I should say not. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. To this day Orthodox Jews will not eat that tendon of the hindquarter of the, orth- of the, of the animal. Moses never put that in the Mosaic Law or the dietary restrictions of Leviticus, but Orthodox Judaism maintains that to this day above and beyond the Mosaic Law. So this struggling, that we're all strugglers driving fleets of struggle buses, what do we take away from this passage? It's a familiar story, but I want to land this and make this as personal and pertinent to each of us as I can. First point goes like this. We are not as strong as we think we are. We still have a tendency to think we're good and we're strong-ish and we need God to give us a nudge or a boost from time to time. But no, we have no strength. Rich Mullins wrote a great song with his lyrics. He said, well, it took the hand of God Almighty to part the waters of the sea, but it only took one little lie to separate you and me. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. They say that one day Joshua made the sun stand still in the sky, but I can't even keep these thoughts of you from passing by. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these, our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. And that's true. All of our culture, all of our context is relentlessly bombarding us with messaging that there is a champion living inside of you. All you have to do is to wear that logo, to pay that monthly subscription to whatever service that may or may not be, all those things, and train like you're going to run a marathon underwater. But you know that that's not true. We are all one phone call away from hitting our knees and gasping for breath. Just this week, I heard of a family here in East Texas High school student in band, head kind of started to hurt. They took him to the hospital, life lighted into Dallas. Within 36 hours, he was dead from leukemia. And this family's life is forever changed. We are not as strong as we think we are. The veil 
and it's very thin, brothers and sisters. So please hear me. The message of Scripture is not ever that you and I try harder to be stronger. We have no strength. This is why Paul says to the church at Ephesus, be strengthened. It happens to you. Part of the Christian experience that we see played out in this Jacob narrative is that we have to come to the end of all our perceived strengths and skills as the foundation or basis of our blessing. It never can be. It won't be. It has to come from out there. One of the most poignant things I've ever heard was at a funeral preached by Louis Giglio for a friend named Dale Jones. And the way Louis described Dale's life was this way. He said, Dale came to the end of himself long before he came to the end of his life. That's a very good life lived indeed. This is the call of Scripture. This is God's will. In fact, point number two, God is the enemy of your old self. (laughs) Doesn't God love everybody? Oh, yes. And he will go to war against that which he did not create you to be. He is the enemy of your old self. He loves you so much and he wants to bless you so much that he will actually struggle against you such that it feels like you're struggling you little struggler. So many of the things we encounter in this life that we think are holding us back, a job, a boss, an employer, a family member, a sickness, some Pauline thorn in your side that you think is holding us back. We think, if I could just solve that, everything would be okay. If I could just fight against that and fix it, everything would be okay. Well, I have to tell you, you won't solve it and it's not going to make you happy. More often than not, you've been Jacobed by Jesus. (laughs) He jumped you right in the middle of your fear and your uncertainty and your doubt, and he's patiently waiting for you to stop trying to fight him off, but instead to cling. Broken hip and all, searing pain, uncertainty, loneliness, and darkness, to cling to him. He will deliver you from yourself, and it's often a wound, but it's worth it. Jacob's hands were finally so empty that he could grasp onto God with no other distraction or competitor for his attention. For a lot of people, realizing that they've actually been struggling against God is the moment when they finally relent and trust God with everything, at least for a time. Third point goes like this. Faith lives without scheming. I know a good many people, particularly the one that occupies my bathroom mirror, who says, yes, God is faithful, but... No, 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 no. Faith lives without scheming. Jacob has this amazing experience in prayer in verses 9 to 12, but then he immediately sets off to put a plan in place that has nothing to do with what he's just prayed. Did you catch that? God, you deliver me. Now, here's what I'm going to do. No, 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 no. He put everyone else in harm's way ahead of him. Not exactly a noble move there. Yes, we are to walk in the light that God gives us and be actively living according to the wisdom that he's given us. And we don't simply collapse in a heap and do absolutely nothing. But what we do and why we do it matters massively. There's still a sense that we all carry that believes if it's to be, it's up to me. It's up to me. I'll do whatever I have to do to accomplish what I must. Nope. Stop. Take a breath. Psalm 27. Wait on the Lord. Again, I will say, Psalm 27 says, and wait on the Lord. We find ourselves thinking things like, I know God is good and sovereign and all that, but right now I have to cut these corners and drop these little white lies so that everything will work out the way I need. You will be discovered sooner or later. God loves you too much to not struggle with you, and you will find yourself struggling against him. And he will restrain himself for a time like he did with Jacob, but not for long. Fourth point, 
It goes like this. It's very simple. Remember. Just remember how easily, how quickly, how soon we forget. It's hard to remember the important things. So sometimes God gives us a limp like Jacob's. I wonder, do you have a limp? I have a limp. Not an actual physical limp. I have a limp. I'll never forget. Sometimes God wounds us and we limp. And I meet people from time to time who are, propon- who are uh, posturing themselves as though there's some spiritual giants. And I'll say, there's, there's no limp there. One of these days he's going to limp. One of these days she's going to limp. And I can spot a limp from a mile away. And so can God. A.W. Tozer said, and this is not a popular quote, but I agree with it, God won't use a person profoundly until he's wounded him deeply. I have seen that to be the case. God never apologizes for these wounding reminders. What God desires most is to be regularly and rightly recognized. That is the best possible thing for us in the universe. Our minds drift and our all leaks, and before long, in our apathy, we descend into autopilot and hours turn into days into weeks where we haven't contemplated the love and the steadfastness and faithfulness of God, and it's in those seasons that we make the greatest wreckage for ourselves and those people around us. And so I wonder, do you have a limp? Have you resented your limp? Perhaps it's time to love your limp. Has God emptied you of your old strengths and blessed you with a new name? Remember. See, God is faithful. When Jacob was Jacobed by the mystery man, the mystery man turned out to be God himself in the pre-incarnate form of Messiah, Jesus. God held back his strength, and he didn't use his full weight on Jacob in the tussle any more than I used my full weight when I used to wrestle with my little guys because I would have killed them. Jesus doesn't use his full weight on Jacob. But 1,800 years later, we see this same Christ willing to wrestle again, but this time (laughs) in place of all the millions of little Jacobs all over the world, all the liars, all the cheaters, all the swindlers, all the arrogant, all the thieves, all the killers, all the gossips. But unlike Jacob, this great, great, great ancestor, Jesus, the Messiah, doesn't send everyone else ahead to meet the coming judgment that he will take himself. No, this true Israel, he fights with God. He goes to the cross out in front and he wrestles with this this God. And this time, God, his father, does not restrain his power and he unloads his full weight of justice and wrath. He did way more than dislocate his hip. For three hours, the full, unmitigated, infinite wrath of God is poured out on his own son. Jesus lost a decisive battle that day while God grapples with him in judgment for three hours before the final dregs of wrath were emptied on him. Jesus lost so that just like Jacob, we could be declared the victors, so that we could be said to have prevailed with God, even though we would have clearly lost everything. We are blessed. We have a new name. Every one of us, if you are in Christ, and this Christ is very much alive forevermore, I am Eric in Christ, who struggled with God for me. And this will never not be true for all eternity. This is the blessing of life that I need today. So may we each receive that blessing of never having to grasp for anything again. We are his, and he is faithful. You little strugglers. 
struggle well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for the glimmer and the glimpse into what our life is. We little Jacobs, we little deceivers, we little self-justifiers, we little self-graspers. Now, Father, change our minds, reorient our hearts, that we with all ten fingers would clutch and cling to your son Jesus because he was crushed by you when you did not restrain your wrath. Father, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another and to remove from us all of our deceit, all of our swindling and cheating, and you've declared us winners, even though we know better what you say matters most. So, Father, I pray for anyone in these rooms on all three floors or watching remotely that does not know you, that is still trying to wrestle and get away from you, you will change their mind. If necessary, dislocate their hip and draw them to you because you're worth that. For the rest of us, Father, would you remind us and encourage us that you are for us. We need not cut corners. We need not self-justify. We are strugglers with you. So give us, by your Holy Spirit, the capacity to continue to clutch and cling. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.